Well, good morning again, Grace Church. What a privilege we have to hear the words of the living God. Amen? Amen. I am thrilled to open the Bible with you this morning. And as Nick said, I would like to preach on one of the Ten Commandments, the one that is most directly related to global missions. Which commandment would you say that is? You may be aware that Jews, Catholics, Lutherans, Greek Orthodox, and Reformed Christians number the Ten Commandments slightly differently. And scholars debate the best way to divide the text. This morning, we will examine what most Protestants call the Third Commandment, but which I would number as the second for reasons that I won't take time to explain now. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now I know that this church has a passion for studying God's word and searching the scriptures like the Bereans, So I would not at all be surprised if at this moment some of you were thinking to yourselves, what? What is Alex saying? I may not be exactly clear on what this commandment means, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't have anything to do with global missions. What does this commandment mean? Many of you have probably heard what I was taught. This commandment forbids us from using the name of God or Jesus as a swear word. I remember working with a guy during a summer job when I was in college, and he might hit his thumb with a hammer by accident. And he would say, Jesus Christ. And friends, he wasn't saying that as a prayer. (laughs) So I told him, not to say that anymore, not to do that, based on this commandment. However, even though this interpretation seemed fairly straightforward to me at the time, I must confess that I was always a little puzzled why this commandment would make it into God's top ten. And if my view is right this morning, number two when compared with commandments like do not murder or do not steal, this commandment seemed to me just a little trivial. I'm wondering if anyone else has been bothered by this thought. Well, the common interpretation is a reasonable one. Leviticus chapter 24 tells the story of a young man who blasphemes the name and curses God. And the Lord commands that he be stoned to death. So God clearly takes this kind of cursing very seriously. Yet remember, the second commandment doesn't say, you shall not blaspheme the name of the Lord but you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Are we sure that both expressions mean the same thing? 
Another option is that this commandment prohibits swearing an oath by invoking God's name and then breaking that oath. That is, swearing falsely. Jeremiah 7.9 lists other sins that are prohibited in the Ten Commandments. But we may wonder whether swearing falsely relates more closely to the commandment, you shall not bear false testimony, rather than the second commandment. About 20 years ago, when I entered Wheaton College graduate school and learned more about the ancient Near East, I was taught that ancient people names of their gods in magical spells and incantations, essentially trying to manipulate the gods to do their bidding. So perhaps the second commandment is directed against that pagan practice. Many commentators interpret the commandment as a blanket prohibition against any misuse of God's name whether by cursing, swearing falsely, or using God's name in spells. But again, is this issue really central and important enough to become the second commandment? This morning, I want to propose a different interpretation of the name commandment to you, an interpretation that isn't original to me but I was persuaded of by a scholar named Carmen Joy Imes. She made the second commandment the focus of her Wheaton doctoral dissertation, and she recently popularized her understanding in a book entitled Bearing God's Name. I would like to present her interpretation of my sermon this morning and develop it a little bit on my own. So I have entitled my message this morning, Promoting God's Brand. Hopefully this title will make more sense as we go along. So let's take a closer look at this commandment. The various traditional interpretations are all based on the assumption that the verb take basically means speak and refers to a verbal misuse of God's name. However, the Hebrew word translated by the ESV as take is the verb nasa. We're missing some text here. Yeah. So the, the verb translated as take is Uh, translating the Hebrew verb nasa. This is a common verb in the first five books of the Bible, and its basic meaning is to lift or carry. As in, for example, to lift up one's eyes or to carry the ark. Outside of the second commandment, Nasa is rarely translated as take and never in a similar context. So even though the King James Version firmly established a tradition, translation tradition, that has persisted to this day, this unusual decision should make us curious, if not 
suspicious. What does the word nasa mean? The basic meaning of carry couldn't apply here, could it? Well, at the seminary in Indonesia where I teach, I tell my students that probably the most important tool they can use to translate and interpret the Bible is a concordance. And if you were to use a concordance to look up the other verse uses of the Hebrew verb nasa in the Bible, you would find, lo and behold, this verb can be found just a few chapters later in the book of Exodus. And that in these occurrences, the verb also takes name as its object. Very intriguing. So in chapter 28, you'll see the the reference here on your screen. God describes the garments to be worn by Aaron as the high priest of Israel. In particular, this first passage describes the ephod, which was a sleeveless, long shirt covering the torso. And on the shoulder pieces of this ephod, there was to be two stones, the stones of remembrance, on which the twelve names of the sons of Israel were to be engraved. And the high priest was to bear, Nasa, their names before the Lord for remembrance. Exodus 28, 12. In other words, when the high priest was coming before the Lord to make atonement, he was to represent the tribes of Israel by physically carrying the names of the sons of Israel. Later in the chapter, we learn the names of the tribes of Israel are also set in the breast piece. And that Aaron was to symbolically bear their names upon his body to serve as a visual reminder of the people of Israel. Near the end of chapter 28, we also read about a golden plate that rested on Aaron's forehead, on which was written, Holy to Yahweh. In this case, the name of God signifies his ownership of Aaron. As high priest, he belonged to Yahweh and was set apart for a special purpose. He was dedicated to serve the Lord. So, here is a drawing of what the high priest's garments might have looked like. Notice that the priest would bear or carry the names of the tribes of Israel on his shoulders and on his chest and the name of Yahweh on his forehead. Based on these passages alone, we can begin to form a theory. What if the second commandment should be translated with carry or bear and refers to both aspects we just observed God's ownership of Israel and Israel's role of representing God 
wherever they went. This interpretation would accord nicely with a massively important passage that is recorded just before the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus in chapter 19. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. That is, Israel, you belong to me. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is, you have been set apart to mediate knowledge of me, to make me known among the nations. Let's look for additional evidence that supports this interpretation. Many of you are probably familiar with Aaron's blessing in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This blessing is well known to many of us. But what verse comes next? Have you ever noticed verse 27? So they, the priests, put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. In other words, in showing mercy and covenantal favor to the people of Israel, Yahweh has put his name upon them. They now bear his name because it is on them wherever they go. This verse reiterates that receiving God's name, having the name of God placed upon you, is a tremendous blessing and incredible privilege. But it comes with great responsibilities also. Bearing God's name symbolized God's ownership of Israel. They belong to him. Plus, representation. Israel was called to show the nations what God was really like. Now, this made sense in the ancient world, in which slaves were often tattooed with their owner's names either on their forehead or on their hand or on their forearm. Temple servants were even branded with the name or symbol of the God to whom they belonged. Even today, we write our names on our lunch bags or on our water bottles. So this concept of ownership should make sense to us, too. Yet Israel was not taken to be God's special possession for no purpose. They are saved and blessed and branded with God's name to make that name known throughout the earth. Perhaps you're not yet convinced of my interpretation. Is there any more evidence? Well, consider Deuteronomy chapter 28 which weaves the same web of themes of blessing, covenant, mission, and the name of God. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. 
The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the people of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. A more literal translation perhaps makes the meaning a little clearer. The name of Yahweh is proclaimed over you. The name of God is invoked or spoken over the people of Israel so that it is on them. Therefore, the people become holy to God and are blessed. Now remember, the second commandment is written negatively, as are most of the other Ten Commandments. Prohibits bearing the name of God in vain or uselessly or to no good purpose. So, in other words, if God's brand of ownership is written on you, if you are holy to him and are called to represent him in the world to show the nations what he is like, don't make God look bad. Right? Don't fail in your mission. Because if you do, then you will bring dishonor to God's name rather than glory and honor. Leviticus 22 describes what will happen if Israel bears God's name in vain. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. And you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. If you bear the Lord's name in vain, you will profane it. You will drag God's name through the mud. God's reputation in the world will be damaged by your actions rather than lifted high. So how might we express the second commandment in modern terms? And please allow me to go on a bit of a tangent I wonder if some of you are wearing t-shirts this morning. Well, 100 years ago, no one wore t-shirts. Isn't that strange to think about? T-shirts are a modern invention. After World War II, white t-shirts, especially worn by men, became cool as a sort of symbol of rebellion. Yet it wasn't until the 1960s, when so many other things were changing in American society, that graphic t-shirts became popular. 
companies only began printing their logos on t-shirts later in the 1980s and 1990s when I was a kid. And one of the leaders in this field was Nike. Yet one of the most successful sports marketing campaigns of all time was Gatorade's commercial Be Like Mike, which debuted in 1991. I realize this dates me a bit, but does anyone remember that commercial? Yeah? Like Mike, if I could be like Mike, I want to be, I want to be like Mike, right? Are there any Chicago Bulls fans in the house this morning? Are you with me? Yet it was really Nike that ran with this concept. They sold millions of Air Jordan basketball sneakers based on the idea that you could be just like your favorite sports star by wearing the same shoes that he did. I understand that Ben Affleck has just made a movie about Nike and Michael Jordan. It's a fascinating history because it changed the history of advertising forever. The ingenuity of Gatorade and Nike's campaigns was that by buying their products, you could identify yourself with Michael Jordan, join the community of Jordan fans, strive to emulate his athletic skills yourself, and all at the same time, promote the Nike or Gatorade brands. It's genius. So why do I mention all of this? Because maybe this is the best way to conceive of the second commandment in contemporary terms. Brothers and sisters, we are brand ambassadors for God. I don't mean this in a crass way at all, but we are God's marketing campaign in this world. Our lives are intended to display His greatness. We are constantly wearing the Yahweh logo. And our message should be, like God, if I could be like God, I want to be, I want to be like God. Right? We are to promote God's brand throughout the world. You see, all people without exception are commercials for something. Our words and our actions promote the things that we value. Our lives are like a sign pointing to something saying, this is worthy of my devotion. So the question we need to ask ourselves this morning as followers of the living God and bearers of the divine name is what message do our lives speak? What are we proclaiming about God? Are you a good advertisement for God? Are you bearing God's name well? Or are you bearing God's name in vain? As I mentioned before, the first and second commandments are written negatively. 
You shall have no other gods before me or make a carved image or bow down before it. And you shall not bear the name of the Lord your God in vain. Carmen Imes numbers the Ten Commandments as I do, and she summarizes the positive inverse of the first two commandments in this way. Worship only Yahweh and represent him well. She then writes this about the first two commandments. These two commandments bring the covenant relationship into alignment. Yahweh is the only God worthy of worship. Israel must see itself as belonging to him, representing him in the world, to the world. To bear his name in vain would be to enter into this covenant relationship with him, but to live no differently than the surrounding pagans. Israel's fate in the succeeding narratives always comes down to breaking these two commandments, either failing to worship Yahweh alone or failing to represent him well. The rest of the Ten Commandments flow from the covenant formula established by these first two commands, fleshing out what covenant faithfulness looks like in every conceivable area of life, work, family, conflict, marriage, property, and reputation. Then in her book, Imes makes what I think is a brilliant suggestion, that the first two commandments are reflected in what scholars call the covenant formula. Let me explain. Throughout Scripture, we find similar phrases describing the relationship between God and his people. Let me just quickly share three examples. Exodus 6, 7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. 2 Samuel 7, 24. You establish for yourself your people Israel to be your people, and you, O Lord, became their God. Jeremiah 7, 23. I will be your God, and you shall be my people. You probably recognize this formula, right? There are similar phrases throughout Scripture, even into the book of Revelation, chapter 21. And Imes views this covenant formula as the re-expression of the first and second commandment. I will be your God. That is, you shall have no other gods before me. Worship only Yahweh. And you shall be my people. That is, do not bear his name in vain. Represent him well. You have been chosen and set apart as a holy people to make God's name known throughout the earth. If Imes is right, and I think she is, then the implication is that the Ten Commandments at the head of the entire Mosaic law, are built on an invitation to relationship. The first two and fundamental commandments are God's words to Israel and to you to enter into a committed, exclusive 
loving relationship in which the living creator and almighty God becomes your God and you become a member of his holy people. The Ten Commandments are not a dull and dry set of rules to follow. They're not to be viewed as an ancient monument to be displayed in courthouses, a relic of the legalistic past. No. This is God's intimate call to you to be joined by covenant in relationship with him to walk with him in the path of true human flourishing and life to take upon yourself the most important mission in history by bearing his name and to know that God himself will be with you empowering you to fulfill it even to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, the cry of our heart this morning should be, you, O God, are mine, and I am yours. Amen? That is what the first and second commandments are all about. Up to this point, I've been speaking rather freely about us as new covenant believers fulfilling the Ten Commandments, which, of course, were originally given specifically to the nation of Israel. Is there any evidence in the New Testament for the interpretation I have proposed? I think there is, and I could show you several passages, but let me read just one. This morning. You've probably heard these two verses before without realizing their connection to the second commandment. It's the commissioning of the Apostle Paul. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for Saul or Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to what? To carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul, as a missionary to the Gentiles, was chosen to carry God's name. Notice the dramatic shift in how he was meant to do this, though. If you recall in Deuteronomy chapter 28, which we read, the people of Israel would be known among the nations by their prosperity and their military strength if they keep the covenant. Paul and the new covenant people of God will primarily be known by their faithfulness and suffering. They will pay a price like Jesus did, for carrying God's name. As I mentioned in our update, eight years ago, my family was sent out by this church with a mission to equip Christian leaders in Indonesia for the flourishing of the church and the spread of the gospel to all peoples. Our mission has not changed. 
We desire for the gospel to be preached in Indonesia where Christ has not yet been named among 240 unreached people groups and 194 million who have no viable access to the gospel. Because we believe that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And you here at Grace Church of DuPage are a key part of this work. You are partners with us, with Mr. O, and thousands of others in carrying the name of God to every island and tribe in the country of Indonesia. And we pray that we bear the name of God well and not in vain. Well, I realize that I have given you what may be a new interpretation of the name commandment to consider. So let me close with a few words of personal application related to this commandment. First, let's soberly recognize the awesome privilege and grave responsibility of bearing God's name. We have the job of making God's character and his salvation known in this world. There's no one else, brothers and sisters. We are it. We are plan A and there is no plan B. Our lives ought to be commercials for the gospel. And woe to us if we bear the name of God in vain. You know, we have a term, nominal Christians, right? Christians in name only. In Indonesia, these Christians are called Orang Kristen KTP, which means that they have a government ID card that identifies them as Christian because everyone's religion is printed on their ID in Indonesia. But even though they carry the card identifying them as Christian, their lives do not match their profession of faith. But you realize, don't you, that if you call yourself a Christian, if you in one sense bear the name of God, but live like everyone else in the world, you are worse than an unbeliever. You are bringing down the wrath of God upon yourself. My own father is not a believer. And one of the primary reasons why, in his words, is that he is bothered by hypocrisy that he sees in the evangelical church. And Christian hypocrisy should bother us even more so. But you know who's bothered most of all by Christian hypocrisy? God. God is jealous for his name, jealous for his glory, and he will not stand by passively 
when his name is dragged through the mud by those who claim to know him. Judgment is coming. And God will vindicate his name on this earth. That reality should put a healthy fear of God in our hearts. But we need to remember, secondly, that bearing God's name well doesn't necessitate that we live perfectly. Only God alone is without sin. So as followers of God, we should be known as a people who are quick to confess our sin, to admit when we are wrong, to humble ourselves and seek forgiveness. As Christians, we should be known as a broken and contrite people whose lives point to the only one who is perfectly good and with whom we might find true forgiveness of sins. We live in a day when our leaders, politicians, and celebrities never admit when they are wrong. They never confess their mistakes, shortcomings, or sins in a sincere way. There's always some kind of spin or rationale or excuses offered. And even when they do apologize, their apologies seem fake and self-serving. Likewise, we live in a day of social media when there is tremendous pressure to present yourself and your family as perfect and happy all the time. If you only looked at someone's Facebook or Instagram posts, you might conclude that they were always doing cool stuff, constantly laughing with their cool friends or enjoying their adorable kids. No one posts moments of humiliation, shame, or failure unless they can spin it into some kind of self-deprecating joke that makes them look hilarious and witty. Well, friends, to represent God well, to bear his name, we don't have to project an image to the world that we have it all together. We don't have to airbrush our lives and our families so that we pretend to be some kind of flawless commercial. Doing so would only promote ourselves, not God and his grace. In a world that supposedly values authenticity, but which I think is much more about image management, we can be real. We can be vulnerable. We don't have anything to hide. We can let people see our brokenness, And we can be honest about our sin and rejoice in God's mercy in Jesus. Because when we do so, our lives become advertisements for the gospel. Thirdly and finally, let's recognize the missional implications of the second commandment. 
The purpose of this church is to magnify the worth of God by exalting our Savior, equipping the saints, and extending God's kingdom. That's the second commandment. That is bearing God's name in a worthy manner. Whether we live in DuPage County, Illinois, or Central Java, Indonesia. We are all engaged in the glorious mission of making God known to a dark and desperate world. So, dear brothers and sisters, let us raise our banners and carry the name of our God high and with pride wherever he takes us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, and as I pray, I would ask the worship leaders and servers of communion to come forward, please. Father, what an awesome privilege that you have given to us as your people to bear your name, that your name is written upon us, that you have given us as your people, the charge to make you known, to make your salvation known in this world, among all nations. And God, that is not something that we bear lightly. And I pray, God, that you would just further impress upon our hearts this morning this solemn charge that we have as your people. And would you, by your Holy Spirit, empower us to carry out that mission well. God, we freely confess this morning, apart from you, we can do no good thing. But Lord, if we are abiding in you, you can use us to bear much fruit. And that is my prayer for myself, my family, for this church. God, that we would represent you well through what we say and what we do to this dark and desperate world, to the people that you've put around us. Would your name be glorified through us? And we ask in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.